As most of you know by now, I'm a musician, and I've been playing music locally and touring the country for 11 years now. And during that time, I've made something like 9 or 10 studio releases, either full-lengths or EPs, with three different musical groups and a bunch of shorter singles and compilations and live recordings kind of scattered in there uh, throughout that time. And then 2020 happened, and everything came to a halt. And in my main band, we had all our tours and shows canceled. South by Southwest was canceled that year. And for a while, we didn't get together. Everyone was kind of staying home. But we started to get together about a month into the whole thing and keep writing. We decided to keep writing. And over those first two years, from 2020 to 2022, the first two COVID years, right, uh, the product that came out of that for us was two albums, one of which is now released. Also, during that time, the Nietzsche podcast began, basically because I had nothing else better to do with my time. I felt like I was spending a lot of time at home, uh, and even though we did a lot of writing and recording uh, as a band, and I did a lot of writing of autobiographical stuff and philosophy and so on and so forth, it didn't feel like we were ever going to get to the point of bringing it all out into the world, so to speak, you know. And that was sort of the period when the podcast began in the middle of 2021. Uh, some local shows started back up, but all the tour runs outside of Texas that we planned that year ended up getting canceled, uh, sort of latter half of the COVID time, right? During which time the live music world wasn't really fully back yet, and things were kind of touch and go. And the return to the pre-pandemic levels of activity had not quite happened as fast as I thought it would or as fast as I wanted it to. It felt like things were kind of stalled out. And so the Nietzsche podcast happened. And um, I should emphasize that when I started the podcast, I have to admit that I had entertained thoughts that the music world might never go back to the way it was. I've always been very much a fan of philosophy as well as music, and I've talked at length about how my plunge into philosophy was sort of you know facilitated by being a touring musician uh, because it gave me the opportunity to read more often, uh, you know, and I have the privilege of having had a couple bandmates over the years who sh shared those same interests, right? We would spend time debating some philosophical or political idea, you know, you know, either the morning after a show where we're grabbing coffee at some coffee house in Savannah, Georgia, or smoking cigarettes out in front of a tiny little bar in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, we'd be talking about like moral philosophy or something like that. Me and Jeff, our second bass player. Or, you know, I remember me and Nick on our tour through Europe would sort of, we were like walking around in Genoa, sort of talking about Schopenhauer. Um, it, very bizarre to end up meeting people like that who just happened to read. I remember when I first met Nick and we were talking about how we both liked philosophy and he just immediately brings up, he's like, well, Nietzsche is my favorite. And I was like, what? But, you know, Nietzsche is a great philosopher. I guess it's not that surprising um, because, you know, out of all the philosophers that could be people's favorites. Um, not many of them write at the level that Nietzsche does or as, write as enjoyably as Nietzsche does. So in any case, um, the Nietzsche podcast happened and, you know, I tried publishing, publishing some essays on Medium uh, before this, some of which would sort of later form the blueprint of future Nietzsche podcast episodes, and some of which are still up on Medium, by the way. You can find them. Uh, they're free now. But in any case, I had that epiphany that people have found time nowadays, what they call found time, now that we have this world of podcasts, and that 
probably the most popular medium for talking about philosophical ideas isn't actually the written word. Um, I mean, obviously the written word will always be important, but that, you know, now if you don't have time to read and you're just part of the general public and this isn't a specialty for you, you can take along a podcast while you walk and while you clean your house or while you drive or work or hike or whatever. Uh, so what if I were to take the subject I really know the most about, which was Nietzsche, and make it into podcast form instead of writing articles? And I'd been told in the past I had a good voice for podcasting, and that was that. People seemed to enjoy it, and I realized after a certain point that I was actually engaging with a not insignificant number of people on the topic of philosophy. And philosophy had always been my second love, such that, you know, I'd chosen music, but the choice had always been between that life-pursuing music and one-pursuing philosophy. And the Nietzsche podcast showed me that perhaps philosophy was still like a viable thing to spend my time on as a creative outlet. And for roughly the first year... Um, things continued to stay the same, and I hadn't really fully returned to the world of touring or thought about what that might look like, you know? I mean, anytime I start a creative project, I always assume it's just going to fail. Um, not that I don't have confidence in it, but you, you just have to, like, maybe that's a bad way to put it, of assuming it's going to fail. You just have to, like, let it go and assume that it may never be popular or prominent or important in any way and just do it anyway. Um, because otherwise if you get super obsessed with that, you'll never do anything. Right. And so, you know, when I first started the podcast, it was kind of like, I don't really know if this pandemic thing is going to end. Um, not in terms of the deadliness of the disease, but like the mindset, the way that it altered the way people think about things. I mean, people were talking about the death of the movie theater, right? I was kind of thinking along those same lines with the live music venues in terms of, if movie theaters are dying because people can just stream everything into their homes, live music is already a, a tougher industry, I would say, than getting people to go see films, right? Uh, it's always been way less lucrative. We're not selling people not, as overpriced as the bar is, right? You're not paying like $10 for popcorn <laughs> at a bar. A lot of bars these days have popcorn for free. And it's still impossible to get people to come out to see live music. It's not impossible, but it's like pulling teeth to get people to see a band that they've never heard of is maybe the way to put it. Like people aren't necessarily like hungry to go out and explore new things who are just the, the scene of people who just enjoys live music and wants to foster and support that is always a very small select group of people in any given scene throughout the country. Right. Um, and everywhere you go, people are like the scene sucks here. And it's like, yeah, it's not, the problem isn't your city. It's just that it's tough, you know, it's tough to get people to come out to live music. And so I was kind of thinking with the way the psychology had changed after COVID, I'm like, this might just never come back. Like, what if movie theaters do die off? Everyone just gets stuff streamed in their homes. The future is just like SoundCloud and Spotify, right? And maybe that's it. But, you know, I kind of had this faith in the back of my mind that like, there's something about the live music experience that the people who really do enjoy it will want to keep going and seeing. Uh, they'll want to keep doing this. And so I kind of always hoped it would come back, but I didn't know. I didn't know what would happen when that world did come back and whether I would still want to do the podcast at that point. Um, so we visited the West coast in 2023, um, or sorry, 2022, March of 2022. And that was a disaster of a tour. Uh, I talked about this in the episode last season on music. I kind of gave my story of how that whole thing went, but the long and short of it is this, that it both confirmed to me that traveling around and playing music, it was still something I wanted to do. But it's also something that was harder than ever to do and was probably never going to be financially viable 
and it remains as risky and fraught an enterprise as ever. And our fall touring plans last year also sort of like fizzled out. Um, and my other band, I was in a second project, also ended up splitting up over personality differences. And it was like, I didn't, I kind of kept going with the podcast. It was the only constant in my life at that time because the music world, it, you know, I thought I was jumping back into it, but it, for various reasons, it was not as much of an intense jump back into the music industry as I really wanted it to be last year. And part of that was just chance, luck, bad luck. Part of it was just sort of where the music industry is at right now. And part of it's that we were, you know, my main band's been around for like 11 years at this point. And so um, there's not really anywhere for us to go, right? We've kind of probably hit like where we are, where all our potential is. I mean, may maybe not. We're still doing it because we like doing it, right? That's, But I guess that's sort of my point. The only reason why we're still doing it is because we love doing it. And so anyway, the podcast was going that whole time and I realized I can keep doing this. And in fact, I'm getting a lot out of this. And this is something that actually has potential to grow, you know, and that I can sort of nurture and create this broader audience for. And so meanwhile, this kind of brings me back around to this new band, because throughout all of these years, I'd been composing other material on the side that was like more melodic, more influenced by things like Celtic folk standards, um, the harp compositions of like Kim Robertson and Alice Barr. And as well as influences in rock, you know, but probably more up the alley of like Fleetwood Mac than Black Sabbath, right? And I decided, as I already had like two albums to release in one band and a full length in a second band that now would probably never come out because that band broke up and there were disputes over how and when to release it. And now who can say if it will ever see the light of day? So I just kind of made my peace with that. And I didn't want to give any more material to any existing project I already had. And long ago, I had been in bands or projects where I was the main composer, or where it was my baby, my creative vision, and I kind of wanted to get back and do that again. And I felt like I maybe had the opportunity since it was kind of a false start and Destroyer of Light didn't do much last year, except for that tour, which was, again, it was a disaster, but it was still a wonderful time. It was a great time. So this idea went all the way back to the beginning of the COVID years, right, where some of these songs have their origin. And over those years, I'd worked up a bunch of sort of riffs. And after we came back from that tour in March, uh, the vocalist and I got together and we put together a group and we sort of smoothed off the rough edges of the five songs. And then everyone brought their own style and contributed something to the arrangement. And people played things I never would have played or written, ideas that I never would have considered and made these songs sort of like transcend the original idea. But the whole premise basically began with me playing acoustic guitar in my home studio um, back when I didn't know what was going to happen, right? I didn't know if I was going to tour again or be in a band again or, uh, you know, anything like that. And I just initially had the thought this was a project that was just born to be recorded. I had no idea that it would be a band and we would play shows and so on. And now it looks like we're sort of moving in that direction. But the original thought was just, I have this album, and I'm going to go to my friend, James Clark, amazing vocalist, and we'll see if he likes the material and can write some cool melodies. And he did, and it sounded great. So we set out to recruit the other members, and we put together this group. And so we recorded last summer. It was a really hot day, and it was after a couple months of rehearsing and learning the material. And we got together at this little studio in South Austin called Cedar Creek. It's tucked away in this quiet neighborhood. 
um, on property that sort of comes right up to the creek, surrounded by all these like oak trees, and the roof is made of metal, the roof over the tracking booth there, which meant that after loading in all the gear and then setting everything up, and once we started getting the first takes, it was hot as hell in there. Um, and so that first day was really rough. We were all sweating our asses off. The next day, the temperature was more manageable. Uh, we did the majority of the tracking. Uh, we had a lot of kind of hiccups and roadblocks, but we got over them. Um, by the final day, it was sort of windy and that had changed to like the temperature drop. There were all these dark storm clouds overhead and it kind of cooled off significantly. So it was like an interesting, complete change to the vibe of the first day. And uh, we celebrated with a couple bottles of wine after we pulled like a third all day stretch of recording. And it was on the last day, we, it was the most fun because we got the violins, we got all these v different backing vocals and piano parts and acoustic guitar and percussion. And um, at the end of this process and uh, sort of throughout, everyone expressed at different times, they felt this was one of the most meaningful things they'd ever worked on. We are all super proud of it. And so even though I mentioned the band Slumbering Sun and talked about the songs and the album that we have coming out, I might not have really given the story and the meaning behind this band to all of you. Uh, which is, I think, it might make some people in the audience maybe more interested in hearing it, because um, I've just sort of mentioned it, but I haven't really said what it is, you know. And so I'm sure the observant people have kind of picked out the obvious references to Nietzsche or Heraclitus and the track and album titles, but I realize not everyone might notice or think about that, and, you know, maybe the background of this project will be interesting to people, that thematically it's a very Nietzschean, Heraclitean album. So at the very beginning of this podcast, we talked about that aphorism, how the true world finally became a fable, the history of an error. It's basically about how Nietzsche rejects metaphysics. He rejects the separation of essence and appearance, the division that has beguiled mankind since the days of the Greeks, that behind the mere appearances of phenomena, there's a true essence, a whole true world of which we have no direct knowledge or experience, a world of being, of um, a world of actual existence, and substance and duration to which our sensory experiences are kind of like a like a pixel right a rep a representation of it it's not the thing in itself and ever since the days of plato that belief has been carried forward nietzsche sees it in christianity in kant in schopenhauer uh, but nietzsche asserts that the time has come now where we can recognize that this true world by having been made so unattainable has ceased to be a motivation for us this metaphysical world beyond um, can't serve as a goal any longer or as a source of uh, value on earth. Because once we recognize that the world we live in is the world of phenomena, of sense experience, uh, that it's only a moral prejudice, that the true essence ought to be worth more than mere appearance, and that this is the most badly proven assertion that there is, Nietzsche writes, um, that what appears is what is valuable. Because what we care about is the world of appearances, and no longer should this real world that we actually live in be regarded as illusory. It's the world that we care about. It's the world in which all our cares exist, all our wants, our loves, and hates. It's where they all make themselves felt. And what is that world? What is the character of all that appears within it? Well, we find it's not a world of static, unchangeable being, but a world in which all things become. Uh, meaning here, transformation or change. That all things arise into being and pass away, uh, but there's no permanence of being. This arising and passing away itself is eternal. To put it as straightforwardly as possible, change is eternal. Unlike figures such as Parmenides and Zeno and Plato, 
people who believed that only what was unchanging and eternal could truly exist. Because what truly exists is what is, not what will be or what was. Uh, in contradiction to that, Nietzsche and Heraclitus argue that only in appearance do the phenomena of the world actually partake of existence, so to speak. Only by making themselves felt are things quote-unquote real, when they're sensed by other phenomena, uh, when they're felt by other phenomena. That's how the things of the world come into existence. That change and transformation and strife are not defects within reality, but it's like the very cloth of reality. It is the revealed character, the pattern that we see in all things. So that idea of existence was put forward in Heraclitus's philosophy. We find it in one of his fragments. And uh, Heraclitus says, quote, This world, which is the same for all, has not been made by any god or man, but it always has been, is, and will be an ever-living fire, kindling itself by regular measures and growing, going out by regular measures, end quote. And what this means is, I mean, yes, that the world is literally fire to Heraclitus, that fire is the fundamental element out of which all other elements are derivations or rarefications, but furthermore, that the poetical or metaphorical character of the world is to be like fire, rather than solid, impenetrable, unchanging earth, like might be the you know, view of a Parmenides. Heraclitus sees the world like the flickering of a flame. It's this dance of strife and chaos. He also um, puts this forward in his idea of the metaphor of Aeon, uh, the boy god of the Zodiac, used as a representation of what the cosmos is like. He builds things up and knocks them down, like a child playing on the beach with his sandcastles. And so the creation and destruction of all things in the world is it, it's totally innocent. It's unconscious or unthinking, we might say. It's simply like the joyful play of a child. That's the story of all the ever-recurring creation and destruction throughout all the universe. It's an innocent thing, and no god or man has created it. Nietzsche's view of the cosmos is derived from Heraclitus, and he gives his understanding in Twilight of Idols, which sort of ties back to that other passage, how the true world finally became a fable. But this is in another section entitled What I Owe the Ancients, where Nietzsche writes, quote, Heraclitus will remain eternally right with his assertion that being is an empty fiction. The apparent world is the only one. The true world is merely added by a lie. And what magnificent instruments of observation we possess in our senses. End quote. So much of Nietzsche's philosophical project is about the celebration and love of this world, of becoming, of uh, letting go of being recognizing it to be an empty fiction, but it will ever serve as a temptation for us as well because that idea of being is like a metaphysical consolation, Nietzsche calls it. He, he writes in Birth of Tragedy's 1886 preface that this is how all of you will likely end as comforted, right? And there's no shame in that, I don't think. We become romantics, we become Christian, we become afterworldsmen in our old age. Uh, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a known phenomenon, right? But nevertheless, the world of being eternally calls out to us to escape somehow from this unpredictable and chaotic interplay of uh, forces in which we live, this unpredictable world of pain and pleasure and gain and loss and fame and infamy and love and grief. And we want to tell ourselves that it will all be okay, you know, when something we love has been taken away 
and we're confronted with the reality of death, when we find that our losses sort of linger on with us, and uh, when we are, you know, we find our happiness is just as fleeting as everything else in the world, right? It's the, sort of the problem of Faust. And this is the eternal debate between Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, whether one should attempt to let go of one's willing and become a willless knowing subject who represents the world and comprehends it, but without um, desiring for the things of the world, right? Or whether one should, on the other hand, embrace willing and embrace desiring, embrace this world and search for happiness and opportunities for creativity and love within it, right? In spite of the suffering that you're bound to receive. I spent a lot of time on the Schopenhauer side of the argument in my life. I remember times, you know, I'd be out on tour and I'd be reading Schopenhauer's essays and Chiron's aphorisms and Ligotti's con conspiracy against the human race, and Benatar's arguments for why we shouldn't breed at all, and, uh, you know, like really marinate in that kind of existential sorrow and angst. And the type of music I play is also necessarily tragic, right? It's doom metal. It's about being resigned to your doom. A main literary influence on the lyrical content of the genre is Lovecraft through bands like Black Sabbath and Electric Wizard who, like, you know, they're writing about aliens far beyond our power who kill and destroy the minds of mankind with impunity. Um, it, it's like a world that's fundamentally is terrifying. And it, it it's like brutally absurd. There's no heroics or good intentions. Uh, none of that is ever repaid with success or glory. Uh, it's an immoral and indifferent universe, Right. And among my favorite doom bands are also kind of another side of the tragedy of doom metal is like bands like Warning and Pallbearer, where they write about depression and the struggle with depression and self-loathing and existential angst. And, uh, you know, there's like lyrics and probably I think in both of those bands about it's like having a heart rending pain so deep that you're kind of thinking longingly about the release of death. That's like the the end of um, Paul Bear's first album of like um, in the grave, no more sorrow shall weigh me down. Right. And that was my own emotional world for a time. And it was during that time when I discovered Buddhism. Right. And I went along that same path that Schopenhauer did. And I wished for this end to my own desires and an end to my own karma and a release from this world of struggle and suffering. Uh, that's what the Buddhists call samsara and, uh, I had that yearning for nirvana, right? Release, uh, extinction, complete uh, detachment from the world. Uh, the metaphor that is used in the sutras is fire unbound, unbound from any physical form or appearance. So release from becoming. Uh, and in the view of Schopenhauer, that is to, you could say it's to become one with true being, but by that same token, it's to become nothing, to render this very real world of the senses into nothingness. And that phase lasted a long time for me, about five years or so. And I would say I came out on the other side by having decided that, in fact, I did want to live in this world, that this world of mere appearances and desire and struggle and suffering is the only world we have or know or experience. It's the only place where existence manifests and knows itself where the character of existence is revealed. And if Schopenhauer is right that the release from becoming is nothingness, then he, like all the Buddhists, would have us live as if dead already in hopes that we will remain truly dead and in the void upon passing away from this world. 
And it's ultimately a philosophy of world rejection, of life denial. And, uh, you know, it was right in the year leading up to the pandemic that I sort of felt that rejuvenation from this, when I felt myself no longer in need of Buddhism around 2019, where I really began to appreciate how much I loved the world. I like love nature. I love the people in the world. Uh, I love my knowledge and my studies of history and all these ideas and music and all these experiences that I'd had. And I didn't want to like nullify any of that. I didn't want to erase things that I'd done, even things that I'd now, you know, regret. Um, Buddhism, for instance, itself, you know, was not something I wish I didn't ever explore. It helped make me who I am now. And so I'm grateful for all of it. I'm grateful for this reality and my place in it. So to circle back around to what this whole short special episode is about, when it came time to write the lyrical content of this album, the whole journey of mine is kind of what it ended up being about in some way. It's not like a concept album. That's just sort of thematically throughout it what it's about. I mean, the first song, for instance, is entitled Morgan Wrote. Uh, it's the first one that James and I worked on, and we wrote the lyrics uh, together. But... I kind of explained, he asked me what it's about, and I explained the themes to him, that it's about the dawn of day, about setting out on like a quest or something, about the dawning of consciousness and self-knowledge. Uh, the title, Morgan Root, means daybreak. That's also the title of Nietzsche's third book. The word means specifically a red dawn, as in dawn's rosy fingers, an oft-quoted line from Homer. And the content of the lyrics is not specifically about daybreak, but... Uh, like the book Daybreak, but it, it conjures the imagery of the dawn as Nietzsche kind of uses it in his work. James then added the theme of, you know, being about to undertake the sailing voyage, and the imagery began to sort of shape itself from there, you know, where we imagined this ship setting out from the icy fjords under this crimson sun in wintertime. And it ended up being this wonderful approximation of how Nietzsche talks about, you know, wandering in the ice or voyaging into uncharted seas, so it's like a song about throwing yourself into the adventure of life uh, and the adventure of ideas, right? Uh, making questionable one's own happiness, one's own moral ideas in order to sort of search beyond the horizon. Um, so yeah, um, you'll also see these themes in the title track. It's another song I wanted to talk about, The Ever-Living Fire, right? Um, and a technique I kind of used in writing these lyrics was to treat abstract concepts as personified. Or Nietzsche says in his tips for writing, the more abstract the idea we want to convey, the more we have to titillate the senses with our language in order to get the idea across. And so in the song, uh, The Ever-Living Fire, you know, it's like the world itself or life or existence, the cosmos, right, as understood as this ever-living fire, is sort of given a character in the song. It's addressed in the second person throughout the song. So the song is like a love letter to a pantheistic deity in some sense, a love letter to the world itself as though it were something living. And I found that to be a useful tack to take in writing because it, it, similarly, we did the same thing sort of in Liminal Bridges. Uh, it's another song earlier in the album that uh, some abstract idea can be encapsulated as a persona in the way that the Greeks and the some of the other pagans would have understood the world, right? Um, and so that's sort of a mythological in a way, right? Uh, a falsification of the world that we're presenting in this album. But that's what art is, an oversimplification, carving away certain things to reveal others, and willingness to deceive ourselves in some uh, small ways uh, in order to get across a more important or more fundamental uh, 
uh, emotional reality that the artist wishes to convey. So we're writing, I guess, quite the opposite of death metal, you know, like Euronymous and the band Mayhem once famously said he was trying to like make fun of the, the people he thought were posers in death metal. Uh, and he said that they might as well call it life metal, what they play <laughs> disparagingly. Well, we're kind of making life metal. Um, I don't know. I think that that genre name would sound kind of lame though. So, uh, because it's, I don't think it's insipid positivity that we're portraying because throughout the album, especially the songs where James wrote most of the lyrics, we're talking about grief, we're talking about loss. And that was important to me to include that too, because we're talking about that struggle or temptation to lapse into dreams and metaphysical consolations to like intoxicate ourselves to escape from the world. And so thematically and stylistically, it's still rooted in something like doom metal. Um, and because it's sort of tragic in that way, but it's that pessimism of strength is what we're aiming at, right? A lot of other bands tend to emphasize hopelessness, but we're actually emphasizing hope and not in the optimistic form, but more like a deliberate choice, right? Have faith in the world, love the world. Um, amor fatih. Uh, let that be my love henceforth. And so it goes back to Nietzsche versus Schopenhauer. It goes back to that whole thing once again, right? Is tragedy just something to make us resigned and give up on the world as Schopenhauer saw it? Or is is it that tragedy allows us to make beautiful the calamities and suffering that we experience in the world, as Nietzsche thinks? And Nietzsche wrote, I believe in Eke Homo, there's no correct answer to this simply a choice of whether one says yes to life or says no. And that's the most fundamental question. It can't be answered by means of logic or science or argument. It's strictly a question of feelings, of will, of values. And so this album is about me deciding to say yes to life once again, or that was what I was thinking of. That is the journey. But because of the artistic representation and how we personify these abstract concepts and we also wrote about grief and loss and all these, this interplay. And there's so many things you can interpret into it. And I'll be very interested if people do interpret other things into it that I never intended. Um, and I think in the process of imparting those lyrical themes, we composed and arranged some pretty cool progressive genre bending stuff. And these were some of my proudest compositions um, just from like a music theoretical uh, perspective in some level, but just also for like, writing a lot of hooks that I really enjoy. Uh, some people have compared it so far to grunge or to shoegaze, prog rock, doom, all, all sorts of styles of music uh, and comparisons have been drawn. Uh, we heard vocal comparisons from Mike Patton to Patrick Walker to Ozzy. One commenter said that Kelsey's guitar solos sound like Mastodon, which uh, that made her giddy to hear that. There's a lot of variety on the record and more instrumentation too than just you know, two electric guitars, bass, and drums. That's sort of the meat and potatoes of the album, but we throw some curveballs curve in for you, right? You already mentioned violin. There's a huge violin section, a whole sort of symphony in there. And with everyone being involved with other music groups, um, I must say our future won't be easy. In spite of how stoked we are about this album, everyone has other engagements. I mean, two of the bands that the members of Slumbering Sun are drawn from, which are Temptress and my band Destroyer of Light, we're going on tour in March and April, meaning this project will have to go on hold. Uh, right now, Garth, our bassist, is on tour in South America with the band Enforcer. Uh, he just posted a picture from Argentina. It looked packed. Um, they're super popular, hair metal, speed metal type stuff, so if you like that sort of thing, check them out. But that, take, that took out all our opportunities for February gigs as well. So our first show isn't until like South by Southwest of this year. And that's going to be a rager. It's a free event. 
Uh, it's a yearly event. It's sort of an Austin institution called Stoner Jam. It's at like a large outdoor venue. Pretty much every local stoner rock and stoner metal band in town and a lot from out of town and other states as well. I think Disbrew is coming up from Juarez, Mexico. Um, but I'm starting to see the downsides of everyone coming from other projects. You know, Everyone's awesome and really solid at what they do which is why everyone is in such high demand for other projects. But we're going to make it work and start hitting the grindstone pretty hard in the summertime, and I'm sure I'll keep everyone posted about that. We might be coming to your town. So the album The Ever-Living Fire is out today, and if you've made it this far in the episode, hopefully that means you're one of the most dedicated listeners of the podcast who would be willing to help me out in any way uh, possible. Obviously, if you want to buy the album, that would make me super happy. Um... You know, especially if you don't really have money to give monthly at the Patreon, like this is like you can just download it digitally, the whole thing for seven bucks, one time thing. It'll make me super happy and be a huge support. Like, I can't tell you how much that would mean. But even if, you know, you don't want to spend any money at all, uh, it's something that you can do that's totally free and there's not that much effort. Just go over to Spotify and give the album a listen. Uh, it should be up today or the next day. Uh, the more monthly listeners on Spotify we have, the more opportunities we'll have. And we already have like three more albums of material we're working on. Everyone is a road dog with touring experience. And so we think this has potential to go places. But the key metric for a lot of record labels and people in the music industry these days is simply monthly listeners on Spotify. And we don't have that many, but we're already climbing. And it's kind of crazy because we haven't played live yet. And the album isn't even out till today. So solely based on the strength of the two singles we released, we got a decent amount of buzz from our you know, friends and people with their ear to the ground for the underground music scene. So I'm already super thankful for that and kind of blown away by the reception. Because everything you do as an artist is super meaningful to you, but it's amazing what other people find it to be as well. And so if you like this kind of music, give it a stream. It'll help us out massively. Or if you just want to support the podcast, give it a stream. And I think it's accessible enough that a lot of people will like it. And if it's not your cup of tea, you know, you only like classical music or you only listen to lo-fi beats to study to, or if you only like metal when they're screaming or whatever, well, to each his own. You do you. No hard feelings at all. But I thought the audience at large might be interested in hearing the philosophical, the artistic vision behind the project, and maybe it would make them kind of appreciate what it means to me and might be interested in hearing it because you know the project is younger than the podcast it started while i was doing the podcast when these ideas of nietzsche's were swirling around in my head more than anything because i think about nietzsche all the time now uh because of you know all the research i have to do to keep this podcast going right and keep it consistent and so this is something that i really enjoy that's creative that's you know, it, it's artistic, so it's going to be subjective whether you like it or not, but it's kind of thematically about a lot of the same things. And I hope some of you will find some enjoyment or entertainment from it. So everyone who popped in to give this special short episode promoting myself a listen, uh, I love you. And to my patrons whose support uh, partially helped fund this musical effort in addition to a lot of the exciting content that I have coming up on the show, uh, you guys have helped out immensely and a very special thanks to all of you too. So everyone, Amor Fati and signing off. If you enjoyed the Nietzsche podcast or found it helpful, you can visit us and support the show at patreon.com slash untimely reflections. The link is in the description. Or just share the show with any of your friends that you think might enjoy it or on social media. Thank you for your support.